0: Uh, We're in the book of Hebrews. I hope you all have uh, the notes or at least you have access to them or on your phone or something. Um, And the reason I say that, I don't always say that, but to really um, appreciate in its fullness all that the author of Hebrews is doing, you have to keep the big picture in mind. You really do. Because this book, and you see it in this passage, is filled with Old Testament quotes. I mean, just filled with them. There's probably no book in the New Testament that demonstrates the importance of the Old Testament and its connection to the New Testament than the Book of Hebrews. One other, just quick review, of, by way of introduction. <clears throat> the author, and we don't we don't know who it is. Uh, it does the author is not identified, and there's just no consensus on on that. So we'll just say we don't know who the author is is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. Now, we're early. Remember, we're only a few decades after Jesus went back to the Father and his work was completed. And so these Jewish people who become Christians, the pool of all of the traditions and all of the practices and all it meant to be a Jew is very, very strong in their lives. They're part of the new covenant, but the old covenant defined everything that was important to them. And so, and we'll see a little more of this in detail, the, the danger of going back is real. And it does not necessarily mean going back and losing your salvation. It's not that. It's going back and falling into the old traditions and practices of being a Jew. That's been fulfilled. You don't need to do that. And as a matter of fact, that will hamper your growth in Christ. So they're the themes that he's, he's, he's trying to, to show. And in addition, there are some other things that he must demonstrate. He must show, once again, the absolute superiority of Jesus. And so the first three verses, which we dealt, dealt with last time before I, I, I uh, left for the trip, was Jesus' is a superior revelation. The first couple of verses. In these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son. And that 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 remarkable, majestic, awesome, incredible—in the true meaning of that overused word—sevenfold description of who Jesus is in verses two and three. And you ought to just go back and read that every now and then. This is my Jesus. This is who He is. Then, as and we're sort of just getting started with this. The second part of the book. The second part of the argument of the book is that Jesus is superior to angels. Now, there's not, there's not a complete understanding or even consensus. Why does he feel the need to do that? Why, why does he feel the need to show that Christ is superior to the angels? Well, the best way to think about that is we know there were certain Jewish mystical cults that really elevated angels, and some even said, Jesus Christ is a great angel. Now that seems bizarre to you and me, I, I, I know that. But that seems to be why he felt the need to do this in writing the book, and, in the beginning of, of the book. So he does this in just a, a remarkable way by showing, and remember, these are, old, these are Jews who have become Christians, their authority was the Old Testament. So the best way to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels is to quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. So that's what he's doing. Are you with me? I mean, that, if you don't understand that, that, that's what he's trying to do. If you're going to prove this to a Jewish Christian early in the church, only a few decades after Christ finished his work, the best thing to do is cite their authority, which they're familiar with, the Old Testament. And so he does that in verse after verse. And again, if you follow in the outline the notes, I give you the Old Testament verse, and then I'm going to say a word about each one. So let me real quickly review this. This first quotation is from Psalm 2, verse 7, one of the really early Messianic Psalms. What's he showing there? That Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's not an angel. And in that passage... He uses the coronation formula to today, I have begotten you. That's the coronation formula of the Old Testament kings. It doesn't have anything to do with origin, beginning, creation. It has everything to do with position and authority. Secondly, he quotes from second Samuel chapter seven verse fourteen, which is the, one of the summary passages of the Davidic covenant. That covenant God made with David, that his throne, his kingdom, and his dynasty would be eternal. And he says, that's Jesus. So God did not make the Messianic covenant with angels. He made it with his son and his, his greater son, his greater son of David, which is Jesus Christ. Then the third one is from Deuteronomy. This is not quite as, as as easy, but it's still very clear from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, I hope you remember this because we did cover this. This is the third and We'll start with the fourth one, which is new material the term firstborn greek it's prototokos the term firstborn doesn't mean origin or beginning or creation it means authority a position of rank and authority over everything else it's saying something about his position and what when the position uh, when the firstborn comes into the world what what what's supposed to happen the angels worship him So Jesus isn't a great angel because all the angels are worshiping him. He is the eternal son, he's a Davidic king, and he's the firstborn over all creation. Therefore, the angels worship him. And so you're, you're beginning to see, at least I hope you are, you're beginning to see what the author is doing. He's slowly, step by step by step, building the case Don't associate Jesus with angels. Got it? Okay, four of you have it. That's good. Uh, Are you with me? Any questions? That's pretty much where we left off last time. Let's look at the fourth one then again. I'm just following what's in your notes and and looking at the scriptures. Beginning then with with verse 8. I'm sorry, uh, the end of verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse, uh, Psalm 104, verse 4, is a description of what angels do. What does the word angel mean? Messenger. Messenger. Angels are messengers of God. And the he is a reference to the Messiah. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels represent God. They represent Jesus. They represent the second person of the Trinity. They are his messengers, his ministers. And that's something he's going to develop throughout the book. It's quite an important theme he wants to develop. And that's today, um, angels are sort of, well, I'm not sure they're as popular as they used to be, but Angels used to be kind of a real popular thing. There were stores, that, there was a store down on an old market that was dedicated to nothing but angels. This goes back a, a few years. But, I mean, it's just a big end thing, very much associated with the New Age movement and so on. A total misrepresentation of what angels really are. They're divine, they're not divine, they're created beings who are the messengers of God. And all through the Bible, they're just peppered throughout the Bible. God sends them to accomplish some ministry or message that's so important in God's program being accomplished. And it is Jesus who sends them. That's Psalm 104. Now, verse 8. I want to slow down a little bit. Verse 8 is a quotation from Psalm 45. Another major messianic psalm. This is referring to the Messiah. Messiah. And so the New Testament is going to quote that a lot to show this is a prophecy that's fulfilled by Christ. So look at, these, look at these words. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So the, the, the passage, this messianic psalm, your throne of God, what throne? The messianic throne is forever and ever, the scepter of our righteousness, the scepter of your kingdom. And so it's, it's, it's reviewing again that Davidic theme, that Davidic covenant of a kingdom, a throne, a dynasty that's eternal. Jesus Christ is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. You know, that's a major theme of the New Testament. What throne is that? Whose throne is that? That's Messiah's throne. And so it's, a, it's, it's an incredible fulfillment of all of these themes that just keep coming up throughout the Old Testament. And so you have this messianic throne. His, his psalm is extolling The Davidic Messianic king and the author of Hebrews is reminding us, who is that? It's Jesus. He's not an angel. He's not a super angel. He's the eternal son of God. He sits on the throne that is the throne of the Messiah at the right hand of the Father. And he is to be extolled and exalted. Exalted. You don't speak like that when it comes to angels. You see what he's doing? He's building the case step by step by step that Jesus is the eternal son of God, the messianic king. He's not an angel. Okay? Now, the peak stone. Two more. Now I can really hit it because Rob's here. Verse 10, 11, and 12. The quotation is from Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The sun... S O N, the Son is the Creator. Not an angel, He's the Creator. And so the author of Hebrews is taking this very important Old Testament psalm, Psalm 102, and applying it to Jesus, which is what he's doing in this paragraph. As he started, He's greater than the angels. I want to show you why. He's applying this to Jesus. So the theme is the Son is the Creator which is what we saw at the very beginning of this epistle in verse 2 and verse 3, and what is also in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. It's a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. Jesus Christ is also the creator, which, of course, gets to the whole Trinitarian theme of, of who God is. The other thing I wanted you to notice, they will perish, but you remain. Your years will have no end. The son is not other than the creator. He's the eternal creator. How do you speak of the son in terms of time? Do you say he was? Well, no. Do you say he will be future? No. You say he is. He's eternally, as one really strange translation has it, he is the eternal am. He just am. Am. Now, that's, that's grammatically strange, weird, and incorrect. But when you speak of the Son in terms of time, you can't speak about him in past tense, you can't speak about him in person, pre, uh, future tense, you speak of him in present tense, because he's eternally present. In his relationship to time, he's eternal. Now, man, I, this is theologically deep. That's why I said when we started this study, every time you walk into this class at noon on Wednesday, put your thinking cap on. Don't put your mind on a shelf and say, I'm going to rest now for an hour. Don't do that. The author is trying to use deep theological themes to show the superiority and preeminence of Jesus Christ. And I think you'll agree when we get to chapter 13, somewhere in 2022, that you will agree he's achieved his objective. It's a fantastic book, painting a deep theological picture of Jesus Christ. There's one more. The final quotation is from Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool of your feet? That's the second half of, of verse 1 of psalm 110 the first half of psalm 110 says this yahweh said to my adonai sit at my right hand the father says to the son sit at my right hand psalm 110 that's why it's quoted so much is the dy- dynamic center of an Old Testament understanding of the Trinitarian God. God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, this is King David writing, and Jesus quotes this a number of times. He says to the Pharisees in Matthew, I think it's 21, but he says to the Pharisees, now, now tell me, tell me, you guys. Messiah, the Christ, whose son is he? And they answer, well, he's the son of David. Good answer? Yes. Right answer? Yes. Complete answer? No. Because then Jesus says, hmm, then why? And he quotes from Psalm 110. Why does it say? In Psalm 110, oh. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Because he's not only the son of David, he's the son of God. And the text says in Matthew, and they were silent. They didn't know how to answer him. They couldn't answer because he had just shown to them that your understanding of Messiah is incomplete. He's not only the son of David, that Davidic king, He's also the Son of God. He's not only human, he's divine. And so that's what the author is getting at here is he's quoting this tremendously important psalm that's very Davidic, but also helps us to understand that he's the divine son who will rule and reign over this planet. Again, that messianic kingdom kingship theme that's consistently developed in the book of Hebrews. So your thought paper for next week, 500 words or less, is using these seven Old Testament passages show the superiority of Jesus over angels. I think you could do that. It would be such a delight for me to read those. But you'll never do it, so I won't be delighted. I'll have to suffer. All right. Got it? Now, you know, I'm hoping you're understanding all this. isn't, Isn't this a fantastic passage of Scripture? He's not only explaining the superiority of Jesus over angels, and you can't say he's just a great angel. He's helping us to understand more fully, using the Old Testament, who Jesus is. He's not just a great man. He's not just a great ethical teacher. He's the Messianic Davidic King who's the Son of God, Eternal Creator. I'm using all those themes that have just developed in these wonderful Old Testament texts. Okay? Yes, friend. So, looking at the repetitiveness and the emphasis of this first chapter of Hebrews, James rings in in my mind, the book of James, how it's is a, 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 a diatribe of, towards the, the wavering new Christian. <clears throat> um, yeah, it's, it's it's a, perhaps the same audience. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. James is a he's doing a little bit of something different, but it's a, it, it's a there is that same kind of very significant, almost biting. You gotta to come to terms with who he is. You must understand who he is. And that is, I mean that I know you know this man, but that is the stumbling block in every world religion. It's coming to terms with who Jesus is. We've gone through this before. To Islam, he's a prophet. They they write about the Quran writes about Jesus, but he's a prophet. Not the Son of God, he's not the Savior of the world, he's not the Messianic king. To the Jew today, in t- typical Judaism, he is a rabbi. He's not the Messiah. To the Hindu, he's a guru. Hinduism teaches that in that silent period, in those, you know, from when he was a child until he shows up for his baptism, he was in the mountains of, of Tibet with a guru. That's what they teach. Buddhism says he is the key, the key Buddha. Because he realized nirvana in four tries. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, that's how they talk about Jesus. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing, if you put put it in the 21st century, none of those fit with the revelation of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God, the eternal creator, the Davidic messianic king, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. That's who Jesus is. And as I'm sure you've done this with people, in witnessing or just talking with them, the greatest challenge for you is consider the claims of Jesus Christ, who He is, not what you think He is, not what other people are saying. Consider the claims of Jesus, who is He? And the more, and this you know, this is what happened to Lee Strobel. This is what happened to a number of individuals over the history of the church. They doubt everything. They don't believe anything. They start studying it, and they come to faith because the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. If you're intellectually honest, the evidence is overwhelming. That's what Jesus is, and that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to do. So I love the last verse of this paragraph. He reminds us who angels are, and he does it in the form of a rhetorical question. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They serve Jesus. They are his ministering spirits for our benefit. Point, the ministry and work of angels pales in significance when compared to Jesus. It isn't they aren't important. It isn't that they aren't doing significant work in the name of God for our benefit, but their work pales in significance to Jesus. My boss, a lead pastor of my church, uh, he's asked me this summer to do a five-week series on angels. I've never ever done that. I have never preached on angels, so I'm terrified. I'm frightened. I'm scared. I'm intimidated. Now I'm making that up a little bit, but it's just, it's, it's, the hard thing is how can you, how can you develop well a series of messages to help people really understand who angels are? And some of it is just going to correct some images and understanding. So it'll be fun. I've started studying for it already. It's going to be fun. All right. One chapter down, 12 to go. All right. Any questions on chapter one? Refers to himself when, he, when he's looking for the uh, uh, <clears throat> donkey. Uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, he refers to himself as tell him that I am as need of. Him. Isn't that correct? Mm-hmm. That's how he views mm-hmm. himself and it just summarizes. I've often wondered why that person. I don't know if they were a believer or non-believer, but why that would make any sense to the common no. person that they can. Well, I, I think, and it's the same thing that happens in John eight fifty eight when he's debating with the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, Fred, That's that to a Jew, that immediately causes them to think of Exodus three fourteen. I am, I am, tell, you tell the elders, this is God speaking to Moses, you tell the elders of Israel, I am, I am sent you. And the Greek for I am as they go, a me, which is translated, I am, I am. So, I mean, you know, it it's, doesn't take a brilliant mind to understand Jesus' claim there, what he's really claiming there in saying what he says in, in a number of it. And in, in the book of Gospel of John, the, the, the seven great I am discourses you know I am the bread of life I am life and all that that's uh, that's quite important again connecting so powerfully to Old Testament teachings that's what the author is doing us to, to Jews now I'd invite you if you have your your note or packet to take page three for just a moment because this gives you a little a bit of a hint at least I hope it does, of how to think about organizationally, structurally, the book of Hebrews. Along the left-hand side are a series of doctrinal passages. On the right-hand side, following each doctrinal passage is a warning. Now you'll see there are five warning passages. And each one, and we're about to read the first warning passage, each one of these warnings is not about loss of salvation. It's about the call to persevere and endure. Don't give up. And so I'm going to give a word, and we'll, we'll develop some of this as we get a little bit further into the book, because each, each little warning passage is a little more severe, a little more poignant. But here, here the warning is, don't drift away. Look at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2. After this major doctrinal passage, there's now a warning. Therefore, now, as you know, therefore, you're drawing a conclusion based on what I've just said in chapter 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message, declared by angels, proved to be reliable. That's referring to the Mosaic Covenant on Mount Sinai. Paul tells us this in Galatians. And every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Because listen, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. My goodness, that's quite powerful. Don't drift away. Don't neglect the truth. Because what happened to Israel when they neglected the clarity of the old covenant? They were disciplined. They received a just retribution. You see, this is what the author is going to do throughout these warning passages. He's going to say, Now look, God revealed himself to Israel. God said, Here's my old covenant. Here's the Mosaic law. Walk in obedience with that and I will bless you. Do not walk in obedience to that. Disobey me. I will discipline you. I'll take all of the covenant blessings from you. I'll send you into exile.'" and I'll disown you as my people? That's not what he said. You will remain my people, but I will discipline you severely. So this is the author starting now. Okay, God did this to Israel. disciplined them. Despite the clarity of his revelation, why do you think he won't do the same to you? If you neglect, if you drift away from the truth. Now, what he does in verse 3, really 3b three and into 4, is he gives us a summary of the evidence of why this new covenant revelation is true. you see it? Number one, it was declared at first by the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus. It was declared by Jesus. He taught it for three years. And his, that his, his mission through his death, burial, and resurrection, accomplishing the redemptive work of the fa- that the Father had sent him for, how, how, do, how do we know that was true? How do, how do we know that that was a verifiable historical event? The second piece of evidence. It was attested to us by those who heard. What does attested mean? It's not a word we use a lot. What does attested mean? Verified, spoken to, proven. So there's a lot of proof out there. And a lot of people heard what Jesus said. A lot of people said under his teaching, certainly principally the 11 apostles, and then that second circle of 70, and then that larger circle of 120, they all heard it. They all saw and then he adds, and don't forget, God verified his word by what? Signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Signs and wonders is a phrase used constantly and continually of the messianic miracles of Jesus Christ. What Jesus did validated what he taught. And God continues to validate his word at the writing of this epistle and in your life and my life by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. Jim? Is he directing this message to individuals or is he directing to the dispersed church collectively or how would you, would you both? Well, it's a great question. Uh... So the answer is, in terms of the original audience to which the author of Hebrews wrote the book, it would be those Jewish Christians who are struggling with going back to the old traditions and holding on to them, not releasing them. He'll say again and again, don't look back, move forward, persevere. But Jim, like all parts of the Bible, is that, that circle gets larger and larger. So you and I can read this and reach the same conclusion. Don't drift away from the truth. At, at this point, well, the, the Jews were in the diaspora. Correct. That's correct. So they're, they're spread out. And they're, they're that's not, correct. They're not in Jerusalem. They don't have the, yeah, the, the, the continuity of the, the, the Yes, the understanding is this is a little bit later in terms of when it was written. This is to the larger diaspora Jewish population that's spread throughout the Mediterranean world. Jim asked a really good question. Did you understand my answer to him? It's like all scripture. You try to understand what was the nature of the first century audience to whom the author was writing the book or letter. But then, like all scripture, given to us for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, and I'm thinking of 2 Timothy 3.16 following. So it applies to us too. So can we take this paragraph and apply it to our lives? Yes, don't drift away. Hold on to the truth that's been revealed. Hold on to it. It's reliable. It's dependable. And it, I mean, don't, don't, don't drift back. Don't go back. Go forward. So, did I answer your question? Yeah. You know, as I read this, I, mean, I read it first for You should. But then I think about the you know contemporaries. So we have the church that churches that drift. That's right. And so. And the first will use my own understanding and application of this. Absolutely. To, do any of you, and probably many of you don't, but uh, if do any of you read the New York Times on Sundays? No? Okay. I, I do, but there, this week, this Easter week, last week, uh, on Easter Day, the Sunday edition was remarkable. Nicholas Kristof, who was a, a columnist in that paper, every Easter he interviews a Christian leader. And that interview is then published on the op-ed side of the, of the, of the, the uh, editorial page of paper. This, this week this week was unbelievable. Christoph interviewed uh, Serena Jones, who's the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Union Theological Seminary is probably the bastion of theological liberalism today. They've spawned radical theologies, and she um she's a remarkable woman but she is one of the leader of the womanist theology that's now what it's called the, the reason i say all that's not important The reason i say all that he asked her question and this is unbelievable how she answered do you believe in the resurrection oh no that's a fabricated story do you believe in the virgin birth to believe in the virgin birth is bizarre anybody that believes in that is nuts What do you think happens when you die? I don't know. And anybody that has hope of eternal life, that's a very selfish way of looking at faith. That if you lead a good life, God will reward you with eternal life. That's selfish. Our love is greater than that. And I'm I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm getting nauseated. And then I move from nausea to anger. Because here's an example She calls herself a Christian. Would you call her a Christian? No. Whatever Christian means, she doesn't represent it. In 1923, J. Gresham Machen, who was a Presbyterian uh, leader who was being challenged by the Presbyterian leadership, which was beginning to buy into theological liberalism, wrote a book, Christianity and Liberalism. And the thesis of the book is Theological liberalism does not represent Christianity. And what he said in that book was, they should choose another name because they're not Christians. And I thought of that book when I read that interview. She hasn't only drifted away. She has totally abandoned everything that Jesus Christ stands for. I mean, it it was an appalling interview. But this is a woman who's president of one of the most prestigious seminaries in the United States. Now, it is, albeit, and admittedly, a theologically liberal seminary. That's They advertise themselves that way. But he is interviewing her as a Christian leader, and he's asking her questions that are appalling. What happens to us when we die? I don't know. Can you imagine a Christian leader saying that? Can you imagine somebody saying that a belief in the virgin birth and resurrection is your are nuts? That's what she said. So you kind of get to, then what to her, and I tried to figure that out. If you would distill down into one sentence, what does it mean to be a Christian? From her answers to, it was, you know, th- three and a half columns of, of questions and answers. It filled a good chunk of the op-ed page. I couldn't distill it down into one sentence. So that's kind of an illustration of what happens if you give up the authority of the word of the God and a belief in the centrality of who Jesus is. You end up with a bunch of drivel and silliness, which is really what she represents. I'm sorry, that's still very much on my mind because I couldn't believe what she was saying in answering questions that are so central to our faith. Dan. Um, when you talk about the uh, signs and wonders, it's related to messianic miracles. That's right. What would be the difference with the gifts of the Spirit that Paul talked about later on? Is there a difference between the messianic miracles? And well, the wonders I, and... I, th- I think so, Daniel. And the best place to start thinking about spiritual gifts is First Corinthians chapter twelve. That's the, the discourse on the gifts goes 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians. But he says, Paul says here, that gifts are given sovereignly by the Holy Spirit to edify the church. Not to prove Jesus is Messiah. Now, in a way, it will do that, but to edify and build up the church. And so he starts itemizing uh, just a whole series of gifts, uh, like teaching. And, and giving, and stewardship, and administrative gifts, and all of those things. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 12, the main purpose of the gifts of the Spirit is to edify the church. It's to build up the church. That's a little bit different than the signs and wonders, miracles, which verify and validate who Jesus is, a Messiah, the Masonic Miracle. Those phrases, signs and wonders and are used over and over again of Jesus. And he did signs and wonders in Galilee to do what? To prove he is the Messiah. He did signs and wonders in Caesarea Philippi to prove he is the Messiah. And that's what I think Paul's doing. He's making that distinction. Does that answer your question? Let's move into the next passage. So you're with me on that? So we have one doctrinal section done and one warning section done. Now, the second doctrinal section is about to begin. And it is... um, with verse 5 and, and following. And again, please note you're going to see it in this passage. He's going to quote a lot of Old Testament passages again. So now he wants to, now he wants to move from the person of Jesus, the greatest revelation of God, verse 1 through 3, and far superior to the angels, the rest of chapter 1. Now he wants to zero in on his work. His work of salvation. His person is chapter 1. His work of salvation begins here in verse 5 of chapter 2. Are you with me? Yes. Now, I'm in verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, he's referring to Psalm 8, what is man that you were mindful of him, or the Son of Man, that you care for him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. End of the quotation from Psalm. Oh my goodness, it's almost twenty-five above. Ending the quotation from Psalm eight. Now, connect in your mind or in your, your your thoughts or in your notes, beginning of verse five, God subjected the world to come with the end of verse eight, everything in subjection under his feet. You ought to draw a line to this between those two. He's referring to God has exalted his son. He has exalted his son. What is the evidence of the exaltation? What evidence is there of his exaltation? Where is Jesus right now? now, now. At the right hand of the Father. His work is completed. He sat down. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. And for a while, he was made a little lower than the angels. When did that occur? In the incarnation. When he added to his deity humanity. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. He's a little alone, but you've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, why is he beginning this section with that profound quotation from Psalm eight? Why has the Father exalted him? And the answer to that question is because he completed the work of salvation. He did the work that the Father sent him to do that so the Father exalted him. So he's setting it up. Where is he exalted? He fulfills Psalm 8. Why did the Father do that? Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for who a while, made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And here's the key. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everything, for everyone. So now what he's doing, I hope you see that, he's connecting the exaltation of Jesus with his redemptive work on Calvary's cross. He's connecting those two. Why is he exalted? Because he completed the work the Father sent him to do. Isn't the end of verse 8 a magnificent verse? He left nothing outside his control. The total sovereignty of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of the universe. But we, we, we don't see him yet. We don't see everything yet in subjection to him. You and I don't see it. Why don't we see it? When you look out at the world today, do you see everything in subjection to Jesus in the United States of America? Why not? Okay, we're waiting His return. That's that's that's, that's right. But what's the explanation? Why isn't everyone on planet Earth bowing the knee to Jesus right now? They rejected the message because they rejected the message, and thereby they have rejected Him. And because Satan is the prince of the power of the air of this planet, and he's the he's the god of this age, Paul says in some uh, or in Second Corinthians four four. So, so, you see, the plan of redemption is completed, the finished work of Jesus. It's over. It's done. He's exalted at the right hand. But the rebellion isn't over yet. The rebellion is still going on. And as I think Fred just said. That will come to an end when Jesus returns. So that begs this question. I know you know the answer to this, but I'm still going to ask it. That begs this question. Then why doesn't Jesus come back? Why is the Father delaying the order to his son, go get your church, which is the next event? Why? He's not willing that any should perish. That's right. He is interested in one thing right now. From the time Jesus went back to the Father and completed his work until he comes again, this long period, what is God doing? He's increasing the population of heaven. Isn't that right? Yes. That's what first and second Peter keep saying to us. God delays so that more will come to faith. I like to put it, God delays to increase the population of heaven. So what the Bible wants us to understand is that the delay is an act of God's grace. He's giving more and more time for more and more rebellious humans to come to faith. I pray pray that every single one of you around this table has made that decision of faith. I mean, it's, that, it's, it's so powerful to understand what the author's doing here. The Father's exalted Jesus, fulfilling Psalm 8. Why? Because he completed the plan of redemption. And we're waiting the finishing of it. We don't see everything in subjection yet, but it's coming. In the words of Paul in, in Philippians 2, there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We're not there yet. Vast, vast hordes of humanity continues to reject the message, but there's coming a day when they will. I saw a hand out of the corner of my eye somewhere. Is that you, Woody? Yeah, Did you have your hand up? I saw an eye. I was just going to say a lot of people haven't heard the word yet, you know. And of course, you said the same thing when you said they hadn't come to faith yet. So, part of our job is to part of our job is to get the word out. All right. Now, um, I, I guess I think it's pretty clear. Made him a little lower than low, low the angels. I'm in verse nine there, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That again, why is exalted because of the. And here is the purpose of all this. I want to camp on that, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In a way, that's an unusual way to put it. But Jesus suffered death as our substitute. So that you do not have to suffer death. Remember, death has two meanings to it. There is physical death where the body and the soul are separated. My mom went to be the Lord with the Lord on April the 3rd. According to 2 Corinthians 5 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. As we were talking earlier, the welcoming ceremony was with her at 10 o'clock on April the 3rd, 2019. The welcoming committee was up there. My dad was on the front line. I made that up. I don't know if that's true. But that that truth is what resonates. Why? Because the other aspect of death is separation from God. And because Jesus tasted death for everyone, if you put your faith in him, you will never be separated from God. You will be eternally present with him. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but that's, that's the central core of our faith. It really is. When I, I preached my mom's sermon, uh, 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 funeral message Uh, i I developed three themes i said number one in the bible death is portrayed in three ways one going to sleep two Uh, from second timothy four seven paul says it's come i'm coming to the end of my life i'm about to depart and the language there is of going on a journey the next phase of his journey is to go to heaven and the third one is to is to go uh, is to go home And Jesus says in John 14, I I just love that passage, that's why I, I used it. Jesus says, now, guys, I'm going back to the Father. Don't be anxious about this, because I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. So going home is going to the place that Jesus was prepared. And heaven is not just a place, it's a person. It's a place that Jesus is preparing for us, but it's also a person. It's the person of Jesus. And so all of that is true because Jesus tasted death. He suffered that substitutionary atoning work so that you and I don't have to experience death, eternal separation from God. But did you notice, the author says, by the grace of God. Did we earn it? Did we deserve it? Did we merit it? by God's grace Jesus is exalted at the right hand of the Father because he finished the work he experienced death for us so that we don't have to die death in the eternal sense of separation from God okay Okay. I was waiting for somebody to say something but okay all right now, let's begin to crack into the next part. We won't get this finished by any stretch. But but this, this passage, this, there's a lot in this. For, now, he wants to explain this to us. For it was fitting that he, the Father for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory... Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, there's a lot in that verse. You got to make sure you got the pronouns correctly. The Father, by whom and for whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory. Who are the sons? All of the followers of Jesus. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus should make the founder of their salvation. Some translations have that, the author of their salvation. Some translations have the pioneer of their salvation. All three of those translations fit that Greek word. Founder, author, pioneer of their salvation. Perfect through suffering. Now, don't stumble over that. When in English... You read the word "perfect," you think "sinless." That's not what it means here. "Perfect," in its from the Greek word "telos," it means complete, finish, end, goal. Through suffering, what suffering? The scourging and cross of Good Friday. So look at, look at the language as we close here this morning. Look at the language of verse 10. I know this is hard. This is one of those, we're going to see some more of this in this passage. We've got to take each verse very carefully. Now I want to explain to you this grace of God that's evidenced in Jesus tasting death for everyone. He explains that. For the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, Those who put their faith in Jesus made the founder, the author, the pioneer of our salvation complete through his suffering. That salvation is complete through the suffering of Jesus. It doesn't mean Jesus became perfect, sinless. That's not not what it is. The The Greek construction, that's not what it means. It's the complete end of the plan of salvation is through the suffering of Jesus, the scourging and the cross, what we celebrated and remembered on Good Friday. He's a lot more to do. He's a lot more he wants to say about this, but as the Filipinos talk of the God on our wrist, we must obey that God right now. Nobody's laughing at that. So you really think I'm speaking? And this is not. I'm just saying we better watch this. Next week, we begin with, uh, verse yeah, let's begin with verse eleven. I may even review verse ten, Woody. All right. if that's all right. Is everybody with me? This is this is deep stuff, isn't it? This is this is deep, deep material, Fred. Or one "many" has a huge ramification, because it's not all. That's right, it's not all. It's those who come through Christ. That's right. Through that's right, who respond in faith. So. It's a great passage. Yes, hope uh yes, is a lot of time there evidence in this Yeah. 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 There was some, there was discussion about that, but uh, I th- part of it is, and this was really the the major issue. The author isn't identified in in most of the books of the New Testament, like Thirteen Letters of Paul, he identifies who it is right away at the very first verse. The author doesn't do it here, and that that has caused some of the consternation. Is this really an inspired book? But in my judgment, you don't have to read very far into the book saying. Yeah, this is inspired. And there's a lot of other evidence for it too, but yeah. I think it's one of the... Next to Romans, it's probably the most theologically important book in the New Testament. I mean, Romans is the whole theology of salvation spelled out. Hebrews is the whole theology of Jesus spelled out. I mean, it's really deep deep theological reflections on Jesus and constantly going back to the Old Testament to show the continuity and connection between the two. And it also is evidence a thoughtful Jewish person should not be surprised that Jesus is their Messiah because it's all over the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus. All right, I'm going to pray and we're going to go. Lord, we thank you for the canon of Scripture, those 66 books. And among others in the in that canon, the book of Hebrews helps us to connect the Old and the New Testament. They are inextricably linked. And it's just again and again and again and again showing us that Jesus is the subject of all 66 books. What he would have taught the two disciples on Emmaus Road after his resurrection, when it says... He expounded to them the scriptures showing how everything pointed to him. That's kind of what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's showing us through explicit and wide use of the Old Testament who Jesus is, fulfilling all of the redemptive promises, messianic promises that just are all through the Old Testament. Thank you for that certainty we have to who Jesus is. Thank you for the, the triumphant celebration this past weekend of his resurrection. It is the central event of our faith because without the resurrection, our Savior's dead in a tomb. He accomplished nothing. But because he lives, we will live eternally with him. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, Son, go get your church. We long for that day. We we pray for that day. But until that comes, help us to be your representatives on this planet, your light, your salt. And we do that with dependence on you and with the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Amen. See you next week.